Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is December 15th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's episode is Lumbar Punctures in Febrile Infants with Positive Urinalyses? It's just overkill. And our guest skeptic today is Dr. Brian Lee, who is a pediatric emergency medicine attending at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a longtime listener of the SGEM and first-time caller. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dennis. Excited to be here. Especially excited to be talking with you and our guests about the hot topic of febrile infants. Well, you know, with the start of the new year, we wanted to do something special with this episode to kick things off. So today, we have not one, but two of the authors of the paper we're discussing today here to share their thoughts and their expertise. So I'd like to welcome the doctors, P. Karn. Now, our guest authors are kind of a big deal in the field of pediatric emergency medicine, but we'll keep their introduction short and list much more of their accomplishments in the show notes. First up, Dr. Prashant Mahajan is a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at the University of Michigan Department of Emergency Medicine in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He is the vice chair for the Department of Emergency Medicine and section chief for pediatric emergency medicine at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. Our second guest is none other than Dr. Nathan Cooperman, who is a distinguished professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics and the Bo Thomas Brofeld Endowed Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. He is also the Associate Dean of Global Health at UC Davis Health. Nate, Prashant, thank you both for joining us on SGMPEDS. Brian and Dennis, it's a joy to be here with you guys. Always fun to podcast with you. Same here, Dennis and Brian. Really looking forward for doing the podcast and obviously having a lot of fun doing this with Nate. All right, Brian, I think uh, let's get started. You brought us a case? I did indeed. So today we have a six-week-old girl who was brought into the emergency department for a fever of 38.5 degrees Celsius that started four hours prior to presentation. Her parents noted that she has had been fussier today and has been feeding a little less than normal but has otherwise had no symptoms. She's otherwise healthy. She's a full-term female and has had no pre- or postnatal complications. On exam, she is well-appearing and there are no focal signs of infection. You decide to start by obtaining blood and catheterized urine for testing. The urinalysis shows 15 WBCs, two plus leukocyte esterase, and positive nitrites. While waiting on the results of the blood tests, you tell the family the news that their child likely has a urinary tract infection. The family asks you, does this mean we found the source of her fever? Our son also had a fever when he was very, very young, and he had to get a lumbar puncture. Do we need to do the same for her today? Great question. Why don't you give us a little bit of that background on febrile infants? Febrile infants less than or equal to 60 days of age are at higher risk for serious bacterial infections, including urinary tract infections, bacteremia, and meningitis. While UTIs tend to be the most common, we really do not want to miss those infants with bacteremia and meningitis, termed invasive bacterial infection, or IBIs. And there are multiple groups who have worked to risk stratify these infants and have listed positive urinalyses as a risk factor for IBI. The SGM covered the step-by-step approach, the PCARN clinical prediction rule for low-risk febrile infants, and recently the American Academy of Pediatrics published guidelines for the management of febrile infants 8 to 60 days old. 
And in infants 22 days and older, the AAP guidelines state that lumbar puncture may be performed rather than should in those with positive urinalysis, but normal inflammatory markers. There is wide practice variability in evaluation of febrile infants. Prior studies have demonstrated low prevalence of meningitis in infants with positive urinalysis. Infants between 29 and 60 days are at a comparatively lower risk, with studies estimating their risk to be 0.2% in those with a positive urinalysis. These studies, and others, have also highlighted the risk to indiscriminate lumbar puncture, stemming from the relatively high rates of sterile pleocytosis occurring in anywhere from 18 to 24%. Not surprisingly, these infants undergo longer hospitalization with more IV antibiotics. So Brian, what's the clinical question we're trying to answer today? In a febrile infant, less than or equal to 60 days of age, with an abnormal urinalysis suggesting a UTI, do they really need a lumbar puncture or blood work? And what's the reference, Brian? This is Mahajan et al., Serious Bacterial Infections in Young Febrile Infants with Positive Urinalysis Results, which was published in October 2022 in the journal Pediatrics. Okay, and let's move on to our PICO questions. What was the population they included? They included infants less than or equal to 60 days of age, presenting to 26 emergency departments in the PCARN network between March 2011 and April 2019 with a temperature greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius, who had urine, blood, cerebrospinal fluid testing at the time of visit. And who did they exclude? They excluded infants who were born premature, defined as less than 37 weeks gestation, those with significant comorbidities, antibiotic use in the preceding 48 hours, and those critically ill, defined as requiring intubation or vasoactive infusions. They also excluded those who do not have a UA obtained or do not have CSF obtained, or they're unable to contact parents at a seven-day follow-up visit. And what was the intervention? Evaluation of invasive bacterial infections in blood and cerebrospinal fluid. And the comparison? None. And let's talk about their outcomes. What was the primary outcome? The primary outcome was the prevalence of bacteremia or bacterial meningitis in infants with a positive urinalysis. And what kind of study was this? This was a secondary analysis of a prospective observational study. Nate, Prashant, do you guys want to give us your conclusions from this study? So the conclusions from our paper were, among non-critical febrile infants less than 60 days of age with positive urine analysis results, there were no cases of bacterial meningitis in those aged 29 to 60 days and no cases of bacteremia and or bacterial meningitis in any low-risk infants based on the low-risk blood thresholds in both months of life. These findings can guide lumbar puncture use and other clinical decision making. Okay, and let's move on to the quality checklist. First question for you, Brian. Did this study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. And do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable manner? Yes, they were. And do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Do you think the authors identified all important confounding factors? Yes. And do you think the follow-up of subjects was complete enough? I do. They even excluded patients if they're unable to contact them at seven days. And how precise are the results? Unsure, Dennis. Uh, we'll talk more about this in the talk nerdy section. And do you believe the results? Yes, I do. 
Can these results be applied to the local population? I'm unsure. This may depend on where you work and the prevalence of invasive bacterial infections in the local community. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes. And did you see any conflicts of interest? I did not. Okay, let's move on to the results. So 7,180 infants were included in the analysis. About 15% of them had positive urinalysis results. And of those who did have a positive urinalysis, 50% had a urinary tract infection. And for those with a negative urinalysis, only about 0.8% had a urinary tract infection, with E. coli being the most common cause of both urinary tract infection and bacteremia. But we're interested in those with invasive bacterial infections, or IBI. So Brian, what were the key results here? The risk of IBI was higher in infants with a positive UA, which was largely driven by the prevalence of bacteremia. No infants older than 28 days with a positive UA had bacterial meningitis. Okay, let's talk about their primary outcome. When it came to bacteremia, what did they find? 6% of infants with a positive urinalysis had bacteremia, while only 1% of infants with a negative UA had bacteremia. And what about bacterial meningitis? For infants in the first month of life, Rates of bacterial meningitis did not differ between those infants with a positive or negative UA. For infants in the second month of life, there were no cases of meningitis, even with those having a positive UA. Now, I think that point is worth repeating. Even with a positive urinalysis, there were no cases of meningitis in infants greater than 28 days. Additionally, Dennis, there were no cases of meningitis in any infant with a positive UA and normal inflammatory markers based on the PCARN febrile infant SBI prediction rule. All right, Brian, you know what time it is. It is time for my favorite section. You got those nerd glasses on? You ready to talk nerdy? I am ready. This is also my favorite part of the show. Okay, and we are going to ask five questions of Nate and Prashant. Are you guys ready to be? On the hot seat. Oh, man, I guess so. First question is about the urinalysis and UTI. I think it's important to clarify that just because an infant has a positive urinalysis, it did not necessarily mean that they were ultimately diagnosed with a urinary tract infection. We know that the urinalysis does not perfectly correlate with UTI, as there are other reasons for pyuria and nitrites. It looks like only about 50% of those with a positive UA truly had a UTI. Why do you think there was a discrepancy like that? Yeah, uh, Dennis, uh, that is a really good question. And um, as you guys probably know, Shant and I have conducted a series of research studies on the febrile infant, including one on UTIs. We looked at the sensitivity of the urinalysis for children with documented UTIs. But in this study, we took the opposite approach because here we're trying to help the clinicians at the bedside with the urinalysis because they're not going to have the urine culture result in the bedside in the ED. So what we wanted to help the clinician with is the question, if you have a positive UA, do you need to do uh, the lumbar puncture and all the other invasive testing? Well, the positive predictive value, as you pointed out, was only around 50%, as opposed to the sensitivity, which, you know, is given disease, how often is the test positive? Sensitivity is over 95%, but a positive predictive value is 
given a positive test, what's the risk of having the outcome, which is urine culture? So you're right, it was 50%. And my guess is the reason was we considered a positive urinalysis to be any nitrite, any leukocyte esterase, or five or more white cells. So that includes trace positive leukocyte esterase and any nitrite. And we know that there are some children who will have one or two white cells and it, it might cause a trace leukocyte esterase to appear, but they don't have a true UTI. But if we did it on the basis of urine culture and the need to do an LP, horses out of the barn and patients positive urine culture is not till 12 or 24 hours later. So that doesn't help the clinician upfront. One more thing that we can just iterate that Clinicians should be using urine analysis to help guide the therapies and uh, interventions. And it is important that urine analysis continues to be performed. Well, we do really appreciate that you also broke down the rates of bacterial meningitis in the infants with confirmed UTI as well. And we'll put that table in the show notes. Brian, you want to ask our next nerdy question? Absolutely. Next up, we wanted to ask you about inflammatory markers. This is a two-part question. Your research demonstrated that no infants who had a positive UA and met low-risk criteria based on the inflammatory markers in the PCARN rule had bacteremia or meningitis. So the first part of this question happens in a community setting or in a setting where I might not have access to procalcitonin. Are there other laboratory or clinical criteria you'd recommend to help risk stratify these infants? And Specifically, do you have any thoughts about using CRP, ANC, and that temperature threshold of 38.5 that was mentioned in the AAP guidelines? Dennis and uh, Brian, actually, what you ask is a very common conundrum that people face because, as you know, many pediatric patients present to community EDs where they may not have access to procalcitonin. The way the prediction rule is that you need to have all three criteria before making a decision based on the rule, which includes the urine analysis, the absolute neutrophil count, and the procalcitonin. So in instances where procalcitonin is not available, one could consider one of the three inflammatory markers that you have mentioned here. Here, like C-reactive protein, absolute neutrophil count, and the temperature threshold of greater than 38.5, which the AAP also identifies as a potential marker for increased risk of IBIs. However, in instances where the procalcitonin is not available, you need to take these into consideration. Like if you have an elevated temperature and have an elevated absolute neutrophil count, then one should then make a decision related to further testing. Similarly for the C-reactive protein as well. What the AAP guideline gives is some cutoffs for the absolute neutrophil count. And PCARN rule mentions the cutoff of absolute neutrophil count of around 4,000. But in instances where the procalcitonin was not available, studies have shown a cutoff of 5,200 and above is a predictor. Just to summarize, if you do not have procalcitonin, then one could consider the temperature and absolute neutrophil count or temperature and C-reactive protein as risk markers for risk stratification of infants. However, in presence of procalcitonin, you really do not need to use any of these because they have not been proven to be much more of value as compared to the combination of urine analysis, procalcitonin, and absolute neutrophil count. I'd like to add, this is the thing is that the um, our data and uh, the data of the AAP guidelines, and just to be clear, you know, Prashant and I are not speaking on behalf of the guidelines. Of course, the guidelines greatly uh, use our work, but they also use the work of the step-by-step folks and a lot of other people before us. But we like to base our recommendations on the evidence out there. And what is the multi-center evidence in terms of thresholds and when to use them? Studies that have looked at ANC have looked at CRP with it. 
Paul Aronson, he did a study looking for predictors of invasive disease, that is bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, retrospectively, so he didn't have clinical appearance, and the only lab markers he had was the urine, the ANC, and the temperature. Unfortunately, there are no multicenter studies that look at the temperature, the urine, and the CRP alone, period. There is, however, recently published, Brett Burstein published in Pediatrics, a single center study looking at those three markers, that is the urine, CRP, and the ANC, and showed that you know, using those three markers, you can get a sensitivity very similar to the PCARN rule. The problem is what the procalcitonin adds is that it adds great specificity. That means if you don't have the disease, then the markers are not positive. And what that allows you to do, if the specificity is high, it means you're going to be doing less LPs, less empirical antibiotics, and less hospital admissions. And even in Brett's single center study, the specificity is substantially lower than the PCARN rule. What Brett and others should do to really answer your question is to do a multi-center study looking at CRP, urine, and the temperature. However, the best study comparing the biomarkers and which is the best in terms of test accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, and it's very clear for invasive disease, bacteremia, bacterial meningitis, Procal is better than CRP, is better than the ANC, is better than the white count. White count is a flip of a coin. So I know it's a little bit long-winded. The answer is I can't give you a cutoff if you have CRP, ANC, and fever alone because that study has not been done except for Brett Burstein's single center study. And the Europeans have been using procalcitonin for decades. And people keep on using this excuse, oh, I don't have procalcitonin. Well, you know what? I will say to your listeners that it's time to get procalcitonin. Well, thank you very much for that passionate plea and advocacy <laughs> for procalcitonin. Dr. Lee, I think this, is, uh, this, is, this next question is more pertinent to the setting that we practice in. Yeah, um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But if alternatively... I'm working in a setting where I have access to everything, procalcitonin, CRP, temperature, ANC, et cetera. Is there any benefit to using all of it? So this is what happens is that, again, the, both the step-by-step rule and the PCARN rule, really good rules. And we, looked at, we both looked at a bunch of biomarkers, including the temperature as a biomarker. And neither of those rules found that temperature added beyond the other markers as long as they include procalcitonin. So the bottom line with temperature is that it is an important factor. If you don't have procalcitonin, then I pay attention to it. But otherwise, if you were to use all four markers, that is the urine, the ANC, and the procal, which is already really, really good. If you add temperature, you might maybe pick up an extra one patient or two patients although I'm not sure, but it will come at a great sacrifice of specificity. You will be doing more unnecessary tests on patients that do not have invasive bacterial infections. This is the need of the hour, right? If you have evidence about a prediction rule which has good performance characteristics, then that evidence needs to be disseminated. Here we have an evidence of a prediction rule with uh, just three, which is parsimonious, right? With urine analysis, ANC, and procalcitonin. Then one should really push for not adding additional inflammatory markers because you would be in a situation that Nate was just mentioning. What do you do when something else is significantly high? Do you end up doing more testing, keep them longer for therapies? So it would add further confusion. 
If you have a setting where you have at the minimum these three markers that are in the pecan prediction rule, then really there is not much incremental value in using a clinical marker such as temperature threshold or another lab parameter such as C-reactive protein. I do want to reemphasize for our listeners that it sounds like both Nate and Prashant have essentially emphasized the fact that the PCARN inflammatory markers, the urinalysis, the ANC, the procalcitonin were chosen very deliberately to try to maximize specificity and sensitivity. Adding on additional things may not be helpful and can also lead to more invasive and unnecessary hospitalizations and procedures. Well put, Dennis. That was a nice summary of that. All right. I wanted to talk about the prevalence of meningitis and bacteremia. So this study included 38 patients who had bacterial meningitis and 132 who had bacteremia. In total, 151, or 2.1% of patients, were ultimately diagnosed with IBI. Only 470, or 6.5%, had procalcitonin testing performed. How do you think the low rates of bacteremia and bacterial meningitis impact the power of your conclusions? And do you have any thoughts on how we can overcome this barrier in future studies? You know, the the rates of bacteremia, bacterial meningitis, and even UTI, given the population that we've been studying for the last 20 or so years, is probably the most evidence-based prevalence rate of serious bacterial infections in febrile infants. It's very unlikely that you would going to get a larger population unless you keep on enrolling a larger cohort for a longer period of time, which is just not logistically, financially possible. So the chances of overcoming this barrier in future studies is very low just because the base prevalence has changed or has remained low for a very long time for these two cohorts, the patients with invasive bacterial infections such as bacteremia and bacterial meningitis. Ideally, if we had more of more instances, it would have given us more power to our conclusions because there are more true positives. However, I don't think that we'll be able to do this without having a long, expensive prospective study across multiple centers happening at the same time with clearly defined standardized criteria for inclusion and exclusion. For me, the most important point of this study is in the sweet spot age. That's the second month of life. In the first month of life, we are pretty much recommending still the complete full evaluation for invasive bacterial infection. With the fourth week, maybe we can moderate a little bit. But the sweet spot in my mind is the second month of life. And in our study, there were 697 patients in the second month of life with a positive urinalysis, and not one of them had bacterial meningitis, regardless of their blood biomarkers. So that is a really powerful statement. That includes some patients that have high ANCs, high procals, and whatnot. So the problem is, if you cut that 697, and let's just say it's only those with a positive urinalysis who also have elevated blood inflammatory markers, I don't know what exactly that denominator is, but it's smaller. And so your confidence is a little bit less. What Prashant and I purposely did is say, okay, if you want to raise your confidence in what we're telling you about the second month of life, what happens if you get the blood biomarkers and what is the risk of not only bacterial meningitis, but bacteremia? And for that analysis, we extended that all the way to age zero. For the first two months of life, our whole cohort, there were 148 infants who had positive urinalyses, but their PCARN blood inflammatory markers, that is the ANC and Procal, were below the thresholds of 4,000 and 0.5, and zero of 148 in that whole two-month age range had bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. Now, 
we have to caveat that to say 148 is not a huge number. And we're talking about big, bad outcomes. We're talking about bacterial meningitis. So you want to be really confident. But particularly in the second month of life, you've got already a zero out of 697 with a positive UA who have bacterial meningitis. If you want to add a bit of confidence to your decision around it, you can get the blood biomarkers. And if the blood biomarkers ANC and Procal are negative, you can be extra confident in those results. Awesome. Thank you. And our last point is about generalizability. The patients in this study were all recruited from large academic children's hospitals in the United States. And we've seen in cases that the PCARN febrile infant prediction rule, external validation may vary a little bit when applied in other settings or other countries. Now, Nate, you and Prashant both serve key roles in international and global pediatric emergency medicine research networks. How do you think we can leverage these networks to help us solve this ongoing riddle of the febrile infant? And do you think we'll ever get to the point where we find a clinical prediction rule that can be applied everywhere? Or are there just way too many shifting variables? Yeah, really good question. Let me start and then I'll pass it to Prashant. Prashant and I are both involved, as you say, in, in global research networks. One thing that I, I have to say, and again, I, I don't have skin in the game, you know, that as a scientist, you can't have too much investment in your own research because our goal as scientists is just to uncover the truth as unbiased as possible. And I will say one thing on behalf of PCARN. Now, PCARN has an independent data center. We do not get to analyze our own data because we are very wary of investigator bias. We look at our own data with rosy colored glasses. So we have an independent data center. They analyze our data and they did our data analysis here just to put that out here. And that is different than every other research network and PGM in the world. Prashant and I have submitted a very large grant for implementation. It includes sites outside of PCARN, although you have to have a biologic plausibility to think, why would this rule that consists of three laboratory variables, why would it matter if it's done at Kaiser or the local community hospital or a PCARN center? There's no good biologic plausibility. It doesn't rely on clinical judgment. It's just three objective variables. Having said that, Prashant and I are very mindful of that. And I actually think the rounded PCARN rule is ready for global prime time. The only thing I would add is there is this aspect of implementation which needs to be studied. And then there is this aspect of dissemination. And I think both of those terms are embedded in your question. So I just want to reiterate something that the febrile infants who are less than 21 days of age are not a clinical conundrum. And those need to be comprehensively investigated. The, the gap is in the implementation and validation and then implementation in the febrile infants who are in the second month of life. And then there is a very interesting cohort in the 22 to 28 days of age. And there is an opportunity to implement the evidence-based guidelines where the evidence is non-controversial. When a febrile infant is negative by the rule, then you really should not be investigating aggressively or over-aggressively treating them with antibiotics. But there are a couple of small cohorts embedded within them. There is an opportunity to further reduce the variation in performance of LPs and antibiotic therapies and hospitalization. And those febrile infants who are in the second month of life who have a negative urine analysis but positive inflammatory markers. Now, that is a cohort that one could consider shared decision-making. Or what do you do in the second month of life if your UA is also positive but your other inflammatory markers are also significantly elevated? And more importantly, there is this cohort of infants in the fourth week of life who have 
negative criteria by the rule that may be a cohort which is ripe for shared decision making and then those fourth week of life which who are negative urine analysis but positive inflammatory markers that is a cohort where you can reduce the variation in performance of lps so just to summarize what my thoughts are the approach of implementation of the pecan rule is needed where the evidence is not controversial and then there is this entire cohort of febrile infants across the globe where you can do shared decision making Those were the five nerdy questions we had for you and thank you for those amazing explanations. All right, Brian. That was a great discussion. Can you comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGEM conclusions? We agree with the author's conclusions. And what's the SGEM bottom line? In well-appearing infants less than or equal to 60 days with a positive UA, continue to perform blood work and blood culture. However, Infants with a positive UA in the second month of life may not routinely need a lumbar puncture. And can you resolve the case for us? Of course. Blood test results demonstrate the procalcitonin is less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter and the ANC is less than 4000. You have a discussion with the parents and tell them the results of both the blood and urine testing. You review the risks and benefits of performing a lumbar puncture versus empirically treating with antibiotics. Ultimately, the parents opt to forego the lumbar puncture and receive empiric antibiotics with a plan to follow up closely with their pediatrician tomorrow. And how are you going to apply this clinically? In well-appearing febrile infants greater than 28 days with a positive urinalysis and meeting low-risk laboratory criteria, it may not be necessary to perform a lumbar puncture. Three key points for me. In the second month of life, well-appearing febrile infant with a positive UA, you do not need to do the lumbar puncture. That's point number one for me. The second point is in the first month of life, since the risk of meningitis is the same whether you have a positive UA or not, you do have to do the lumbar puncture. And point number three is that particularly in the second month of life, if you happen to get blood biomarkers and they are all negative, that is the ANC and Procal. Not only do you not need to do the lumbar puncture, you can treat that child with oral antibiotics because their risk of bacteremia is also extremely low. Well, we usually have our guest skeptic tell us what he would say. We're going to take advantage of the fact that we have two experts on febrile infants with us. Many of us are still adapting the newest guidelines that encourage shared decision making between clinician and caregivers. So, Nate Pershant How would you approach this conversation and what do you say to these parents? Yeah, so this is a perfect question to sort of end this podcast on because this is a super common scenario. Second month of life, pause of your analysis, that already by itself, assuming the patient is well appearing, we know from the article that 0 of 697 would have bacterial meningitis. But still, around 5% could have bacteremia. But now since we got the added benefit of negative blood inflammatory markers, now we have added security that That they're not going to have bacterial meningitis nor are they likely to have bacteremia. So in this case that child not only does not need a lumbar puncture, that child probably does not even need parenteral antibiotics. Then we could probably load the child with oral antibiotics and follow them very closely. So what I would convey to the parents, I would say that fortunately despite the fact that the infant likely has a urinary tract infection, however the good news is that the blood biomarkers put the child in a very low risk of having either bacterial meningitis 
or bacteremia. So I would recommend to the parents that we should treat with antibiotics to treat the urinary tract infection and then closely follow up in the next day with their regular clinician, reassured again by both the appearance of the child, but also by the negative blood biomarkers. Okay, I'm going to do something a little bit unconventional here for the SGM and again, take advantage of the fact that we have experts with us. So I think the case that we presented to you maybe was a bit of a softball because, you know, both in inflammatory markers were not elevated. Right. So let's take the same case yep. of a six-week-old with positive UA, but change it so that either the procalcitonin or the ANC were elevated. Yeah. Now what do you do? Okay, now that's good because that first case, that was just a softball. This one is where this is actually an area that Prashant and I are investigating. Again, I'm going to give you the data and then I'll tell you what I tell the parents. The data, remember, zero of 697 of these patients have bacterial meningitis, regardless of their blood biomarkers. However, now you have a blood biomarker that's elevated. So the risk of bacteremia still is real. All comers of those 697, if they didn't have blood biomarkers, have a 5% rate of bacteremia. That's important because we're talking about usually E. coli bacteremia. Now you have an elevated blood biomarker. So at a minimum, I'm no longer going to say oral antibiotics. At a minimum, you're drawing blood cultures and you're giving the child parental antibiotics and admitting the child maybe for 24 hours. And what I would do with regard to the lumbar puncture, this is where I would use shared decision-making. And I would tell the parents, we know, given the well appearance of your infant, that of 697 who have a positive urinalysis, none of them had bacterial meningitis, regardless of the laboratory tests. However, now one of the blood laboratory tests is elevated. So the risk of bacteremia, and I'd explain to the parents, of course, that's bacteria in the bloodstream that can cause bacterial meningitis is elevated. So I would recommend definitely getting IV intravenous antibiotics and spending 12 to 24 hours in the hospital. And then we would do shared decision-making around the trade-offs for a lumbar puncture for bacterial meningitis, although I would be confident in not doing the lumbar puncture. Great. Thank you so much. Excellent. Excellent explanation. Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the SGEM, and I hope this has been a great time for you as a first-time caller. Thanks, Dennis. This has been great. Hopefully, I can return again in the future. Well, we would love to have you talk nerdy with us once more. Prashant, Nate, thank you both for taking the time out of your schedules to join us and provide us with your expertise on this issue. It's been a pleasure and always fun to speak with you, Dennis and Brian, and, and always fun to be on uh, on podcast with Prashant. It's a really important topic, and we're all kind of working together trying to make strides to move us towards a more kind of comprehensive and less variability, because we know with a lot of variability, there's issues with quality. So anyway, pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I, I second that thought. It's always fun to do stuff with Nate, whom I've been working for more than 20 years with. And Dennis and Brian, what you're doing is really helping bring this message to the masses. So kudos on that one. And before we go, do you both mind giving us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn. Even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.